Okay, let's turn to God's word. So reading from uh, 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7, and then through to uh, chapter 5, verse 5. And it's entitled in the NIV, God's Love and Ours. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how God this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they've seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is is Christ born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commandments. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, welcome back to to 1 John. We're in kind of like number five out of six uh, uh, looks at 1 John, uh, Sunday morning services. If if you're visiting, if you're here for the first time, I will try and make this make sense to you. We're kind of in the middle of a series, but I will um, do my best to kind of make it uh, make sense to to everyone. Um, 1 John, and the letter where we're picking it up is on page 1227 in in the Bibles in front of you in the chairs. It's a letter um, written by the Apostle John. So he's one of Jesus' closest friends during his life. And this is written to to the churches, um, particularly the the church that John had charge of, um, much later in his life. And we've been looking at it because there's lots of statements in 1 John about this is how we know, these kind of statements. How do we know 
um, that we're really Christians? How do we know that we're, that we're really right with God? Um, that we're answering those kind of questions. Um, and I guess if you, that's the first time you, you sat here and, you, and you've seen one John go past you, you might have thought, has he not said the same thing about three or four times over? And the answer is yes, he has. Um, in different ways, and we'll try and pick our, our way through that as, uh, as we go through the morning. But he started this little passage, didn't he? I don't know whether you noticed, with dear friends. Literally, he says, beloved, let us love one another, for love um, comes from God. Starts the passage with dear friends, and it reminds us of, a, of an, in, an easily forgotten truth. That like most of the New Testament, this is a letter that's not written to you individually for you to go and take away and apply individually. This is written um, to the church. John's got a particular church in mind. And in as much as we are like that church, uh, it applies to us too. But that changes the way we respond to it. So it needs you, yes, to make an, an individual response. But it needs you to make a response within the church family and that impacts the rest of the church family. And specifically when it comes to uh, assurance, being confident that I am right with God, um, that I'm a Christian, that, that I've been forgiven, it is very difficult. I've said you cannot, that's probably a bit of an overstatement, but it's very difficult to have that kind of assurance on your own um, in isolation from a church, and we'll see why as we go on. bit of a recap. John has given us three tests uh, of what is a real Christian. So they're tests you can apply to yourself, uh, and from that then you can be assured, you can be confident um, that you're right with God. Um, or if you're looking for a church, uh, it can be a test of, of, that, of a, what's, a, what's a true church, what's a real Christian. And the tests are, we could have called them social doctrinal and moral, but we've called them, perhaps a bit more simply, the love test, the incarnation test, and the obedience test. Three tests, whether you really believe believer. One is, do you love your brothers and sisters um, in Christ? Two, um, do you acknowledge that Jesus is God the Son come as, come as a human being? In other words, do you believe in the incarnation of Christ? And, and three, the obedience test, do you do what Jesus asked you to do? Three very simple, practical tests of are you really a Christian? Are you really right with God? And John, as those who've been here uh, for a few weeks will recognise, um, has gone through these three tests now um, that we've got to the end of today's reading. This is the third time uh, he's been through these three tests. Um, I'd like to say it was really clear uh, what was the difference between those three cycles, but um, it's not entirely obvious, but I think the difference you could say is this. The first time round. He, he was looking at them against the background that God is light, God is perfect, God is pure, uh, God is holy. Second time around, he was looking at them in the light of the fact that Christians are people who are born of God, people who are born again. They have the Holy Spirit within them. And the third time around, this is today, he's looking at them against the background that God is love. And John Stott, famous commentator, says that each time uh, round, the test is more searching. And I think that's right. I think if you read today's reading again, that we, and we'll, uh, we'll touch on that, you'll find that, that John is probably even more stark um, than he has been the last couple of times around. But also today we will see how all these three tests really fit together um, as one.
So John starts with, with love. Uh, verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. So John starts with a return to the, this love test uh, on its own. You can tell a Christian because um, they love God's people. Love one another for love um, comes from God. In other words, God, God is the origin of love. God is the source uh, of love. So we should love too. Everyone loves being born of God. And John gives us in this, just in these little opening verses, verses 7 to 12, a uh, handful of reasons why we should love uh, one another in Christ. Firstly, because God is love. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Actually, it's just one of those, it's one of the greatest statements of the Bible, isn't it? God is love. What a sublime truth. What a massive reassurance um, to the Christian that the whole universe in which we live, which we study, has been created by a God who is love. Everything you do today, everything you do tomorrow, everything you encounter, everything you enjoy, everything you worry about exists only in the context of a loving creator. Now, it's one of four God is statements in the New Testament. So we also read that God is spirit in John 4. We read that God is light. That was back in chapter 1. We read in Hebrews that God is a consuming fire. In other words, that God will deal with sin and wrongdoing. And now we read that God is love. And you, you cannot pick and choose between them. Um, they're all going to be true all of the time. It would be, but it would be a worthwhile meditation, wouldn't it, to think through those four God-isers. But John still says this is the most comprehensive and sublime of all biblical affirmations of, of God's being. God is Love, and we get it twice in our passage today. God is love, but he's not a distant God who, who, who is love and just holds his love to himself. Uh, he's a God who shows his love. He sent his only begotten son into history. Pre-existent uh, son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, is sent to become a, a human baby. Sent into the world so that we might have life through him, to have eternal life and be born again. So God is love. Um, God shows his love. And in that sense, God, is the, God takes the initiative in love. And it's a really important statement, isn't it? Um, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. All our loving is a, is a response. God is, the, God is the initiator in love. He's the one who, who, who takes the first step. And, uh, and all our love is, is just a response. One writer says, no one who's been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. So in other words, we don't look at, at love as it is between us in our families or our friends uh, and then kind of... Um, Look upwards and extrapolate upwards and imagine God is something bigger. No, we look at God and, and see there is love. We look at the, uh, the incarnation, Jesus coming as a baby, we see there is love. Look at Jesus going to the cross and say there is love. 
And all our love is a response, uh, an imitation, a trying to uh, respond in love to the, to the love that we've seen. Love in the church, John says, makes, um, makes God visible. Verse 12, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made com- complete in us. Now, there's a very similar statement in, in John chapter 1. Where John says, no one's ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He says, no one's ever seen God, but when Jesus comes, um, he makes God visible. And this is a, a really interesting statement, because he says again, John says again, no one's ever seen God, but the implication is, when we as a church family love one another in Christ, God is somehow made visible, isn't that? In that, isn't that a kind of fantastic kind of motivation to be loving one another in Christ? We're making God visible. All, um, all men will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. And when we love one another, God's love kind of reaches its fulfillment. It reaches its end goal, as it were, um, John says. His love is made complete in us. That doesn't mean his love is like, you know, you've started at 10% and it's gone up to 100%. It, it means that God's love, which um, started out with him and then was made manifest in his son and then was communicated to us by his spirit when we're born again, meets, meets the natural end of its journey, as it were, uh, when it uh, breaks out uh, into love uh, within us for, for one another. Do you see that? The love for God kind of like... Um, that's its natural progression, its natural end point. That was a love test. What we'd expect now is for John to move on to the other tests. Before, we, John would have moved on to the incarnation test. Do, do people believe that, that Jesus is really God come in the flesh? We might expect him to move on to that, but, but he doesn't. What he does do is, is he shows that the love test and the incarnation tests... Um, fit together. They're both actually um, works of the Holy Spirit in us, just very briefly. This is how we know him, we live in him, he's given us his spirit. We've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the saviour of the world. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love, lives in God and he in them. What John is doing is he's joining these two tests together, the, the love test and the incarnation test, because he says they're both works of the Holy Spirit in us. It's the Holy Spirit who comes and, and opens up our eyes to the truth that, that Jesus is the Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to, to know God's love um, and to put his love in, into action. They're both works of the Holy Spirit. But that's interesting, isn't it? If those are both works of the Holy Spirit. What are you, what are you looking for in a real Christian? What are you looking for when you're looking for a, a work of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you're looking for miraculous things. If you go down the church down the road, maybe you're looking for somebody speaking in tongues. Well, actually, these two are the works of the Holy Spirit in, in somebody's life. Their eyes are open to the truth that Jesus is God the Son in human form. Um, and, and they're starting to understand how much God loves them, and they're starting to then um, love their brothers and sisters in Christ in, in practical kind of ways. So 
So John's tied love and incarnation together. He's now going to try, he's going to tie love and obedience together. John is pulling all these three um, tests together. And it goes like this. He says, this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. That's how you can have confidence on the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let me explain. John is fitting now together the love test and the obedience test to give you confidence on the day of judgment. The Bible says that Jesus will come again and everybody will stand before God and will be judged. How can you have confidence? Well, John has brought these things together. He says the command is to love. Um, So love is obedience. And he says this is, it is your actions that will provide you assurance um, on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Do, Do you want to be confident that you'll be right before God when God judges? Well, to be confident before God at that point in time, you have to be assured that you're a Christian. You have to be sure that you've taken hold of of the forgiveness um, that God has offered you. How can you be really sure um, that you've taken hold of that forgiveness? Well, because in this life, you've started to change to be more like Jesus. So in that sense, what John says here is, is not that assurance, that confidence, not a feeling. You look inside and say, do I feel like I'm a Christian? No, you look on your outside, you see what you do. And that gives you assurance that you're a Christian. And that gives you assurance that you'll be okay on the day of judgment. He says there is no fear in love. And perfect love drives out fear. There's no fear in love. They're like... They're like oil and water. Love and, uh, love and fear don't, uh, shouldn't coexist in the same place. So one writer says, we can love and reverence God simultaneously, but we cannot approach him in love and hide from him in fear at the same time. Did you get that? There's no fear in love. We can't approach God in love and hide from him in fear at the same time. Because fear has to do with punishment. So when you come before God, God loves you. Why would you, why would you fear? Fear, John says, has to do with, with punishment. And he doesn't say it, but let me tell you that God has made that impossible. God has made punishment for you impossible by punishing Jesus. That's the essence of what it means to be a a Christian. Somebody who looks to the cross and said, Jesus did that for me. Somebody who looks to the cross and understands um, that what is happening there is God is taking all their wrongdoing, all that stands between them uh, and and the creator um, and pours out his righteous anger against it on Christ instead.
And when that person trusts Christ, then they're born again and they're, uh, they're given the spirit uh, of God within them. But understand this, if that is you, okay, you've said yes. Then God has sent on Christ punishment for all you have done in the past and all you have done uh, in the future, all you will do rather in, in the future, it is impossible now for God to punish you any further. It would be unrighteous of God to punish you um, any further. So you do not need to fear God in the sense of punishment. You need to fear God in the sense of reverence for who he is and his majesty and awe and the fact that he is light and the fact that he is pure. But there is no fear in love because fear has to do with punishment and punishment from God for the Christian is now impossible. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So some people come to me, Christians, um, and, and say, and they're having a hard time and they say, is God punishing me? Maybe God is punishing me. And I have the joy of being able to say categorically, no. Categorically, no, he is not. Because if you're a Christian, all your punishment is already gone on Christ. And that's an amazing truth. So, yes, there are times uh, God will take you um, through dark places. But you can be assured that it is his love that does so. He may be training you, maybe giving you an empathy with other people. He may be uh, disciplining you. He may be wanting to point out there are things in your life that he is wanting you to change, but he is not punishing you. There may be things he wants to strengthen you in, and he can't strengthen you without uh, giving you something that you need to push against. But it is impossible him to punish you. Jesus said on the cross it is finished and he meant it. So if you are fearful then you, yet, you have yet to understand uh, the magnitude of God's love for you which is why I keep bringing you back to Ephesians 3. You might want to turn it up verse 14 and this is why this is the prayer that I pray for you and the prayer that I ask you to pray for yourselves. And Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And I pray that, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Pray it for yourself. I want you to have that. The Lord wants you to have that. This knowledge of how... How, uh, of the width and the depth and the height uh, of the love of Jesus for you, 
to know this love, even though this, to know this love is more than knowledge, it's not a head thing, and then you'll be able to uh, fill to the measure of all the fullness of God. So if you're fearful and you don't understand that, and that, um, that undermines your attempt to love your brothers, sisters in Christ. So assurance that you'll be right before God when judgment comes, it comes from two things. One, the absolute certainty that God doesn't punish his children. Two, confidence that you are one of God's children because you can see that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's move on. So, John moves on. We love because he first loves us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever doesn't love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they haven't seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So, if you didn't already get it, John says, uh, I'm making it clear, love and obedience are the same thing. Obedience is essentially love. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience is love and love is obedience. It's given us this command. This is obedience. Love your brother and sister. Love is not an option. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. It's very clear, isn't it? Whoever doesn't love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God. Just it's an impossibility. If you're not loving God, you're not loving your brother and sister in Christ because the Lord wants you to. So be encouraged though, he says at the end of that little passage. Where does it go? We love because he first loved us. He said that already, hasn't he? In a different kind of way. But be encouraged and get the, get the order right. We are responding to a God who, who loved us first. So just be careful in the midst of this. We're not earning his love by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're giving evidence that we know his love by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important principle of all Christian obedience that you know the love first and then you act out of love in love. We're not trying to earn our standing before God. But finally, really, and I guess kind of getting to the... Um, uh, the, the climax, God, <laughs> John wants to, I know this is hard to get your brain around, but go read it uh, at home. He wants to bring now all these three things together. Um, love for brothers and sisters, acknowledgement that Jesus is God in human form, um, uh, obeying Christ's commands. They're all kind of outworking of, of the same uh, relationship. So the three tests that John's been talking about, they're not arbitrary. He's not picked out three kind of, three kind of things which uh, show that you're a Christian. They're three entwined aspects of a, of a relationship with God through Jesus. So he says, basically, if you're born again through, through belief in Christ, you will love God your Father. That's just, in, that's just natural, isn't it? If you're born, you, you love your father. If he's a good father, and God is the best of fathers. If you're born again through belief in Christ, you'll love God your father. You will love those who are born your brothers and sisters. If you love God, you will do what he acts, asks. And that is to, to uh, love one another. 
Love in ways which are active and not just emotional. And John says in the middle of this, his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. I, I, I don't know how you feel, but when the Bible talks of obedience and the commands, do you, do you just not instinctively re, kind of think, no. Because a, a command, we just instinctively think commands are burdensome. They're, they're, um, they're, they're oppressive. But God's commands are not like that. They're, they're not an outward oppression. They're, uh, as, um, I can't remember the entire statement, but I heard from somebody uh, in a seminar recently that God's commands are uh, uh, they're an invitation to life. They're not uh, being pushed into a prison. God's commands are not to kind of push you into a box and make you feel oppressed. They're actually, God's commands lead you into freedom and they do actually lead you into life. And John says, um, everyone born of God overcomes the world. When you become a Christian, the, God, it's the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Surely that is adequate power to help you overcome the way the rest of the world lives. To overcome unlove. And one writer says, it's not the man, but his birth from God which conquers. So, in practice... Let me suggest some practical things. If you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, what I, what I want you to think about is changing your involvement boundary. Okay. You, you can't love your brothers and sisters without being involved with them um, at, at, at some level. So let me, let me tell you what I mean. If, if you're a kind of once a month kind of people in church, um, can, can I ask you to be a twice a month kind of person? Or three times, or or every time a month, um, person. If you are, I come to church, but uh, I, I don't really get involved. I don't get involved in home groups. Can I think you? Can I ask you to move from being a Sunday Christian to being to come to home groups? If you're a kind of well, I, well, I come to, uh, I come on Sundays. I come to home groups, but I don't come to the prayer meeting. Can I invite you to come and uh, uh, um, pray with the rest of the church? And it's not because I want you to do outward things, but actually, it's changing. It's changing that inward boundary line, which, which kind of says how, how involved, how exposed am I going to be um, to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because according to the thing that showed in the newspaper the other day, they say 50% of us say that we're shy, and I'm sure that's at least 50% of us are introverts, and probably more uh, where we're in church. We're all of us drawing a line which says I'm going to be this, this much exposed to my brothers and sisters in Christ and, and no more. And it's both a practical thing and, it, and it's a mental thing. I'm just wondering whether you want to change your, change your involvement boundary. Maybe it's about membership. Maybe it's time to become a, a member of the church, a commitment um, to, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know what it might be. Another practical thought. Um, your, insur- your assurance, your confidence that you're a Christian will be weak if your relationship with God is simply a personal and mental one. If it's you, if it's you and God and the Bible, and that's, uh, that's it, that's a, re- that's a good thing. But your assurance will be weak if your relationship with God is personal and mental. Get it out of your head and into practice. 
Yeah, do, do stuff for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever it might be. Just have a mind to ringing somebody up in the week and, uh, and encouraging them. Do those things about uh, uh, meeting together. Because if, you, if, if, it's, if nothing's changing, if nothing practical is changing, you, your grounds for assurance in Christ are limited. I've said that before. Get it out of your head and into practice. Okay. So as, as a kind of card-carrying introvert... Um, what I find over the years is that introverts wish that everybody else would change um, to fit their shape. I'm not, and that's, I'm that's looking at anybody in particular, but it's just, it's just an observation. You kind of think, well, I wish the church was like this, or I wish the church was like that. Um, and, and can I just tell you with a little bit of sadness, but, but also with some understanding, I've met some very angry introverts. Um, in my time people sometimes get angry when the church doesn't um, doesn't fit their shape okay so I guess I would ask you as well when, you, when you're looking at the church and you're wanting to fit your shape is you saying well, well, well actually is that really about church or is it really about me is the Lord actually wanting to knock some corners off me or asking me to be more brave um, but I think the important response to that is that church should be a safe place. It should be a safe place for, for introverts and, and extroverts alike. And we've, we've touched on this before. And I'd suggest three practical things. Keep confidences. I think mostly we do. But be careful. Keep your temper. Mostly we do, but not always. Not always on email. Keep short accounts. We talked about that before. If you've got a grievance that's more than two weeks old, it's gone. It's your problem. That's what we suggested. Oh, I think we stick with that. If you've got a grievance that's more than the, you know, a week or so old, it's gone. It's your problem. You forgive it. Um, don't bring it up later on. But, but finally, we're changed by uh, what we look at. And I think that is part of, uh, part of John's point. He wants you to, to look at Christ. This is love. Not that we love God, but, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He wants us um, to look at Christ. And we are changed by what we look at. The things that obsess our hearts... Um, changes and we become more like them. So I want you to do a very simple thing, which is look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And there is a principle in 2 Corinthians 3. Um, Paul, writing this time, says that as we uh, contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. When you look at Christ, the Holy Spirit goes to work to make you more like Jesus. And I had another of those conviction moments. You know, I told you of some last week. But I had another of those conviction moments in the week where, where somebody says, fix your eyes on Jesus. You say, thank you, tick. I suddenly discovered I'm not doing it. 
It's, it's one of those Christian things we can like, we, we, we hear the words and we kind of think, take, yeah, that's me. Without actually thinking, am, am I really practically, in a daily kind of way, uh, looking at Jesus? Well, I encourage you to look at him. Uh, be informed by the Bible. It means reading a bit, but then remember it. Call it to mind and look at him during the week. When you need joy, you could look to the risen Jesus. Look at him. Um, read about him from Revelation 1. Look at this magnificent character um, and rejoice. Or when you need reassurance that, that God is in charge, you could do the same. Look to the risen Jesus in Revelation 1. Read it and then bring it to mind as the week goes on. When you're suffering... When it's hard, look to the suffering Jesus. Look to the crucified Jesus. Read the end of any of the Gospels. But then when you're tested in the week, call it to mind. Look at it. Look at Jesus. When you're doubting, you know, read some of the stories, any of the Gospels about how Jesus deals with his disciples. They sometimes say the most stupid things. Okay, and we're just the same. But if you don't know the stories, you need to go read them, um, dig them out, um, and then remember them. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, the gentle, uh, the gentle instructor. When you're struggling with lack of humility, and that will show because you, you, know, you might be unforgiving. <clears throat> you think your way needs to be the one that, uh, that works out. When you're struggling with lack of humility, look at the infant Jesus. Look at the child Jesus. Go to Philippians 2 or the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of Luke. Look, though, at Jesus. When you're tempted to impurity, look at the single Jesus. It's all there for you. But I encourage you this week, you're changed by what you look at. Fix your eyes on Jesus. As you look at Jesus, as it said there, you look more like Jesus. God is love. So we're going to come to communion. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us.